gospel lesson this morning is a familiar text from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. It is a familiar section of Luke's gospel, but I encourage you today to listen perhaps for something new in this word for you this day. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. And now, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her who is said to be barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. Then Mary said, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we ask your blessing upon this time, on our consideration of your word, and ask your blessing upon my words and the meditations of all of our hearts. Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, fasten your seatbelts. I was flying back from Thanksgiving, and the plane had had a little tiny bit of a jostle, but then the captain came on, and in that barely audible voice that sometimes happens when a captain's talking, I heard them say that they had reports that there were significant turbulence coming up ahead, so please buckle your seatbelt, and then immediately the chime and the little seatbelt light came on, and sure enough, just a few seconds later, there were some uh, small bumps, and then about five minutes of sustained, pretty significant turbulence. And then soon after, there were no more comments, the light went off, and we went back to normal. The flying was smooth. Without that little sign and without the warning, the bumps would have been in control. The bumps would have been in control. But the warning, the knowledge of what was to come, prepared me, prepared all of us. And the bumps lost their power over us. One of my favorite songs that we used to sing when I was a kid in youth group and then at camp also was a song written by Lee Hayes and Pete Seeger in 1949. It was known as the Hammer Song. The actual title is If I Had a Hammer. 
It was first recorded by Seeger and Hayes' band, The Weavers. Peter, Paul, and Mary revived the song in 1962, and ever since, it's been a staple of American folk music. And actually, our own Sing for Life concert, uh, or chorus, led us during their holiday concert a couple weeks ago in singing it. I'm sure that many of you know this song or you've heard the words to it at some point. If I had a hammer, it goes, I'd hammer in the morning, I'd hammer in the evening all over this land. The lyrics then continue, I'd hammer out danger, I'd hammer out a warning, I'd hammer out love between my brothers and my sisters all over this land. When Seeger and Hayes wrote the song, they were speaking into a difficult time in the fight for rights of workers. And the song takes the physical elements of the life of the worker, a hammer and a shift bell, and uses them as a fulcrum, a shifting point, converting those items from tools of power used against the workers into tools to empower them. The conversion continues throughout the song, but each time in each verse, the phrases are repeating, whether it's hammering, ringing, singing. They're each hammering, ringing, singing out danger and warning. Why? Why danger and warning? You see, warning and danger, like that seatbelt light, they take away power. They shift power. I used to think that warnings gave power to the threat. I used to think that, and sometimes I think this can be true. I grew up in Northern California in earthquake country, and we never really experienced natural disasters that came with much warning. There were no earthquake sirens or actual warnings that an earthquake was coming. Although my mother would often claim, and still does claim, that the weather indicates the conditions of an earthquake. Although it's very convenient that she always points it out after an earthquake, she'll say, well, it is earthquake weather after all. But the lack of warning, the lack of warning, means that there isn't the same kind of fear that others experience, right? The fear that finds people huddled in a basement during a tornado warning, or boarding up and driving inland in advance of a hurricane. But also, unlike the tornado or, or hurricane, there's no opportunity to mitigate damages. No opportunity to at least try and reduce the power of the coming event. I will add that there are ongoing attempts, by the way, to create early warning signs for earthquakes, but they still don't work very well. Usually people find out on their phones that after an earthquake happened, that there's an earthquake that was coming. So it doesn't work yet. But my point is this, that knowledge and warning take away some of that surprise. And they shift some agency to those who listen to the warnings. But it's interesting to note also that while warnings can protect us or help us protect ourselves and those we love, they don't necessarily eliminate the fear. In fact, the very warnings might increase fear, add fear, perhaps even for the sake of protection. Once we know that we should be concerned, we might do something about it. I'd hammer out danger. I'd hammer out warning. Would it be better to live in blissful ignorance? 
Sometimes I think it would, perhaps. Less fear when we don't know what's coming. Less fear, but again, less decision-making ability, less agency, less chance to react, more to lose, and yes, in the end, more power over us. If I had a bell, the song goes, I'd ring it in the morning, I'd ring it in the evening, all over this land. I'd ring out danger. I'd ring out warning. Warning and danger and fear. Mary, a young girl, somewhere around age 13 or so, is greeted by an angel in our text this morning. She's greeted by Gabriel in her small, inconsequential town. She's greeted by Gabriel and told that God has looked upon her with favor. Gabriel tells her that she's full of grace. And Mary is confused. She's perplexed, our text says. But it's got to be more than that, right? She's got to be overwhelmed, perhaps a bit terrified, and the angel sees this. The angel senses her fear and says those famous words that so many angels seem to utter in scripture, don't be afraid. And I've said this before, but whenever an angel says don't be afraid, fear is probably the most reasonable reaction you could have. We don't often hear Mary referred to as a prophet, but Mary's conversation with Gabriel that you just heard follows the pattern of prophetic calls in the Bible. We see this pattern repeated, and so whenever we see this recipe in Scripture, it's worthy of our attention. The ingredients are typically this. First, what we call a divine confrontation or an interaction, if you will, usually by surprise, with an angel or other heavenly voice. This divine confrontation is then accompanied by words of greeting, and then what's referred to as a commission or a challenge, a request being made of the individual. And then this is an interesting element that comes up throughout these narratives, where then the person who's being called objects. To the call, objects to the heavenly voice. No, it can't be me. You must have the wrong person. It's not me. And then a reassurance from the divine voice. And finally, a sign of some sort. A classic version of this type of call occurs in Exodus, when God called Moses from the burning bush. You re may remember that story, and it's, and it's one of many that follows this pattern of call narratives repeated throughout the Old Testament. And these call narratives from the Old Testament were very familiar to the Jewish people. They heard them over and over and over again. People like Mary. And each of the elements in the call narratives are present in Mary's story. And this is no accident. The introductory word happens when the angel tells Mary that she is favored and that the Lord is with her. And then there's the commission, 
when the angel says, and now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you will name him Jesus. And like so many other prophets, including Moses, Mary pushes back and questions the call. Hmm, how can this be? How can this be since I am a virgin? And then, and then this is when God gives her a sign, a sign in the pregnancy of her cousin Elizabeth. I wish this morning we had more time to talk about Elizabeth, but the pregnancy of Elizabeth, a woman well beyond the childbearing season of life, that's my nicer way of saying that she's old, and a woman who not only that had never been able to bear a child in her younger years either, this, this pregnancy, Elizabeth's pregnancy, is a sign to Mary in this prophetic call narrative. And a critically important sign, immediately after which Mary responds to this strange message from Gabriel. This message of, of warning, of invitation, of declaration, this announcement of the angel, this curse, perhaps, that she might have felt was being put on her, this weight, this life-altering future, the pain, perhaps, the mystery, the wonder, the exhilaration, the grace-filled, confusing, terror-inducing call of this angel, whatever it was, after receiving that sign of Elizabeth, her cousin, being pregnant, she accepts it all. She accepts it. Here am I, she says. She's echoing the words of prophets gone before her. Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be so. Let it be, she says. Let it happen to me. There are so many ways that this can be interpreted. Some see it as a surrender, a submission, an acquiescence to what's going on. Some see it as a faithful affirmation of the call of God's request upon her, a willingness to be a part of God's story. Let it be so. There's a Latin word for all of this. It's a word that I've come to love and treasure. Fiat. Fiat. This is the same word in the Latin translation of Genesis when God says, let there be light. Fiat looks. Fiat. Let it be. Let it be so. I wonder if I like it so much because it's compact. It's short and sweet and sounds like what it means. Fiat. Let it be. So I have to read between the lines a little bit here. What's going on with Mary? The text is rich, but there are gaps in the swift transitions between the visit of the angel the angel's declaration of Mary as one full of grace, then her fear, then the reassurance and the message of the miraculous pregnancy, and then the other miraculous pregnancy, and then fiat. As I read between the lines, the narrative that isn't here, the details that we don't get here in Luke's gospel, and Luke, by the way, starts his gospel by writing that he wrote the gospel to provide an orderly account. I love that, right? An orderly account. And in this orderly account, we actually have more detail about Mary than in any of the other gospels. 
But even yet, and even still, we have to read between the lines to begin to understand how Mary went from being terrified to her expression of fiat. Let it be with me. Reading between the lines, Mary's journey finds its foundation in the prophets who came before her. Mary's journey is marked by the promise of another woman on a similarly strange journey. And ultimately, Mary's surrender isn't to some oppressive power of the world. It isn't a surrender of duress or a surrender toward a source of worry. It is a prayerful surrender and submission. Here am I, the servant of the Lord, she says. Let it be with me according to your word. None of this happens in isolation. Mary has been one who has grown in the faith. She has heard these stories. When the angel comes and the angel goes through this pattern with her, something happens. She experiences a conversion of sorts where her only response can be, let it be with me. She also knows that she's going to go see Elizabeth. This is what happens immediately after in our text. She goes to see her cousin. Why does she go? She goes in part, I think, to see for herself what's going on. Perhaps it's just to be sure, to be certain. She's also going, no doubt, to share with someone else vulnerably what's going on with her. She's got a little bit of time, right, before people will know that she's pregnant. And she has someone that she can go to to be honest and to share what's going on in her life. Someone to walk the journey with her, to find connection with and to find strength in her journey. Being vulnerable with Elizabeth will afford her the comfort in knowing that she is not alone. It's the same with us. It's the same with us. And then she prayerfully submits to God. Let it be with me. You've heard me talk before about these three elements of the faithful life. Scripture, learning what God has been doing throughout time, sharing our story with others, journeying alongside others, and prayerfully engaging with God. And we see all of these here, and we see Mary's peaceful, contented, prayerful response of fiat, let it be so. Each verse of the hammer song starts with the same phrases, right? If I had a hammer, a bell, a song, I'd hammer, I'd ring, I'd sing in the morning. I'd hammer, I'd ring, I'd sing out danger, warning all over this land. And each verse of that song then continues. I'd ring out, I'd hammer out, I'd sing out love between my brothers and my sisters all over this land. Reading between the lines. Conversion of the sources of power against into the power to love. To bring love to our siblings, to all of humankind. Mary's fiat, her acceptance of the prophetic call, like that of Moses, like that of Elizabeth, and so many other prophets, 
Mary's acceptance will be the avenue by which God transforms the course of human existence. Mary, full of grace, favored by God, the bearer of Christ, will bring a transforming love into the world. And in her calling, in her submission, in her embrace of God's claim on her life, Mary doesn't have all the answers. She doesn't know where the journey will take her. And we don't have any indication that her fear is gone completely. And of course it isn't. She's pregnant. She's still a child. Of course she's afraid. But yet she walks. But yet she journeys. But yet she finds some peace in the midst of the storm. And yet she says, let it be so with me. As our Advent journey comes to a close and we transition today toward the Feast of the Nativity, journeying with Mary to Bethlehem, may we too find some peace in her fiat, in her acknowledgement to God, her, her willing of herself to God, her saying, let it be with me, even in the midst of her fear, may we find peace with her and in her. And may we continue in the season of Christmas to find peace as Mary, like the Seeger and Keys song, brings a message that transforms fear, that transforms fear into a message of justice, of freedom, of love between humanity. The hammer of justice, the bell of freedom, the song about love between my brothers and my sisters all over this land. From warning and fear to justice and freedom and love. This is Mary's story. This is our story. This is God's story. Fiat. Let it be so. In the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.